Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Christia Spears-Brown is an author, researcher and professor of developmental psychology. She's also director of Centre for Equality and Social Justice at the University of Kentucky. She earned her PhD in developmental psychology at Texas at Austin. Brown began her career at the Faculty of University of California in Los Angeles. Her research focuses on how children develop gender and ethnic stereotypes, how children understand gender and ethnic discrimination, and how discrimination and stereotypes affect children's lives. As part of her research on discrimination, she also examines the perpetration and acceptance of sexual harassment and how children understand politics, public policies and societal inequalities. In addition to peer-reviewed journal articles, book chapters, she's written several books, Discrimination in Childhood and Adolescence, Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, Handbook of Group Processes in Children and Adolescents, and her newest book, which we'll talk about today, is Unraveling Bias, How Prejudice Has Shaped Children for Generations and How to Break the Cycle. Welcome, Christia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very excited to speak to you today. I have a copy of your new book in my hand. And when we were coming up with a lot of the questions for today, there was so much we wanted to ask you that I don't even think we're going to fit into this podcast. You've written some fantastically interesting books, which I did mention in your bio. But today we're going to talk about your new book, which opens with the words, bias is everywhere, embedded in almost all human interactions. So tell us about why biases develop and how they manifest in children's behavior. Sure. I mean, I think that's what's so tricky about bias is that it is so pervasive. It's hard for us to even kind of keep our radar up and keep spotting it. So I think why it is so pervasive is part of what's brilliant about humans is we are really good at paying attention to people. And we really like putting people into categories and going really quickly and jumping to conclusions. It helps us make quick decisions and navigate a complex world. The problem is we do that for the people that we interact with. And all people belong to groups that are usually pretty visible. And so we see that babies, when they're very young, start paying attention to some of the important groups that we pay attention to. So the big ones are race and gender. And because they're really attentive and paying attention, they look to see what people they can group together. And they look to see what are the subtle cues around them that make those groups important. How do those groups differ? And then they extrapolate from, oh, this group might be slightly differently. Let me create a whole kind of narrative about how all these groups differ. So you see by you know preschool, kids have race stereotypes and gender stereotypes. And then once they start getting formed, they get really hard to undo because we kind of seek out information that confirms these ideas we have. 
And of course, it's incredibly important to understand the damaging impact on biases, particularly for particular groups of children, but for people in general. And that that is essential to understand before we sort of unpick how to tackle these particular biases. So can you talk a little bit about the damaging impact of our biases on children? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I do in the book is I talk about, you know, we have structural biases that are kind of embedded in our school policies and in our laws. And this is, you know, internationally true. We have individually held biases, so the stereotypes and prejudices we carry around. And so both are damaging to kids. You know, the individually held biases, the stereotypes and that we have, it shapes how kids think of themselves. So if you're in a group that people think of as not as smart, you begin to internalize those messages. You begin to shape the types of subjects kids pursue in school. It eventually shapes the types of career paths. It shapes, you know, when it comes to gender biases, it can shape how kids think about their own bodies. When it comes to race, it affects how people view whether one group is more likely to commit crimes or not. And so it affects things like interactions with law enforcement. It shapes body image, depression, anxiety, health. Um, I think health is one of the big ones that we forget affects even kids in elementary school. It can affect things like heart rate and cortisol and how the brain develops. It really is at every level of human functioning. Bias seems to filter in. And I'm trying to work out in my own mind the relationship between bias and labeling. So uh, sort of having the bias allows us to sort of safely label and categorize people into particular groups in our own mind, which for for some reasons can seem attractive in terms of human psychology. Could you sort of help us unpick that a little bit more? Sure. You know, I think that how people kind of think about it is that the world is really complex, right? Individuals, there are so many individuals that we interact with that it is too much for the brain to think about all the individuating characteristics. So I need to put anything into smaller categories to process it. You know, we do it with animals, for example. You come across a small furry animal in someone's house that barks, that has a wagging tail. You can sort that into, that's the category of dogs. And then you have all sorts of this other knowledge we put along with dogs, right? They bark, they want to have a treat whatever it is that we have that goes with that category. And it helps us to not have to think about every single animal that we encounter because we have categories. Well, we do it with people too. So it helps us reduce information. And so the labels give us smaller chunks. So instead of thinking about the million people I interact with, I can think about there's men and women, there's white people, black people, Latino people, Asian people, Middle Eastern people. It's smaller categories that allows me to be a little bit cognitively lazy, frankly. And the problem though, is that it's this like feedback loop, right? So we treat these groups as important. So we give them labels and we use it. Well, what we know in research with kids is when we sort and categorize and use labels, that actually reinforces to kids that these groups are important. And that can actually lead kids to create greater stereotypes about that. So you see it in gender, for example. You know, we have experimental studies where we put kids in classrooms and we say, good morning, boys and girls. Let's line up boy, girl, boy, girl. Okay, let's have the boys over here and the girls over here. We use it as a category. We emphasize the labels. And that alone is enough to strengthen gender stereotypes over the course of only like six weeks. And that's just, you know, four or five hours a day in six weeks, it increased stereotyping. 
also, you know, extrapolate that out to the ways in which we treat gender labels in broader society. When we say, you know, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, let's go to the men's restroom or the women's restroom and the men's clothing store and the women's clothing store. So you would argue that at the very least, the language that we use is something we should all pay attention to, whether we're educators, parents, the sort of the ease with which we can slip into labeling, stereotyping, and just assuming we're dealing with a sort of a homogenous group is damaging. It is, but I think there's a tricky balance here in that I often say, I think we need to talk about, particularly with gender, we, and race is slightly different, but to stick with gender for a second, I think with gender, we need to both talk about it more and talk about it less. So using the labels less, using it as a functional kind of category to sort kids' lives. We need to use that less. We need to use it less in our language to say, oh, there's the man standing there. There's the policeman or the fireman. Using it less in our everyday language as an important group. But talk about it more when we see actually stereotypes and biases at play. So helping kids learn. That seems like a gender stereotype. Why do you think they're saying that? Or why do you think that they think only girls can do this and only boys can do that? So talking about it at a more meaningful level where this about the stereotypes themselves and not as the kind of throwaway language to sort and categorize people. Yeah, I really love that because it gives us a sort of an opportunity to challenge what we see. So we're teaching our children maybe to be digitally literate, media literate. And having conversations, you don't have to have the answers, but you could at least say to your child, gosh, you know, it's not, you know, that seems like a stereotype that doesn't seem particularly true. You're sort of showing them or modeling to them how to sort of challenge those sorts of assumptions that might be around us. Definitely. Because I think we can't censor the stereotypes from kids, right? We can't censor the biases from kids. There's just, there's just too many of them. And so what we can do is help kids spot them. Because I think, you know, it's trite, but it's true that knowledge is power, is that when you're able to recognize a stereotype for what it is or a prejudice for what it is, then it has less power over you. Then you're able to say, oh, wait a minute, that's a flawed way of thinking and that's not the truth. And so I think if we can help kids be more critical consumers of the world, that's really the way that they can fight stereotypes and prejudices in their own lives. Because as we know, as parents, we're, you know, most of the time we're not really around our kids. They're picking up these things at school or at their friends' houses or on a television show. And so we have to prepare them for recognizing the world through the idea that these stereotypes are out there and they have to be able to spot them to be able to resist them. I think it's also important that parents, we parents, own up to our own biases. Or I've taken to, if I have a judgmental thought, I'll tell my 15-year-olds, oh my goodness, I've just heard myself be so judgmental. You, know, you, you sort uh-huh. of, It's not just up to them to challenge these biases. We have to model it and, and, and be honest about how challenging it can be. I, mean, I think that's true for a lot of parenting decisions, right? I think we have to show kids that learning is a lifelong process and that there's things we don't know and there's errors that we make and that it's okay to mess up, but that you're always trying to do better. I mean, I think that's a much more profound statement about how to live, right? Is that we're always trying to do better and there's times we're going to mess up and that's okay. We just kind of write the path. And I do think if we can model that for kids, it says it's okay to mess up. It's okay to be honest about it. The important part is checking yourself, thinking, how can I do this differently? And then kind of writing the course. 
So in terms of reducing our own implicit biases, number one, we can model and own up to them. And secondly, I've read that there are actually sort of implicit associations tests that, for example, I think Harvard has a sort of a test to check your own biases. They do. And I really recommend that for folks. We do that for our students and our classes on biases. I encourage it for parents and for teachers. I've done it myself. It is, you know, you can Google implicit attitudes test, and there's a Harvard one that's really well known, partly because they're the ones that kind of came up with the most famous implicit attitude test. And so they use this. It's also a way for them to collect data. You kind of say, I don't mind you using my data as part of, you know, the millions that they collect. And what you see is that there's, for one, lots of different implicit attitude tests you can take. And these are, you know, the scientifically valid, reliable tests. And there's ones on, you know, race and gender as it relates to women in STEM and men in childcare and the elderly and a whole range of implicit biases we have. And I think what you see is that there's a real disconnect often between people's hearts and minds. One way I think about it is that, you know, you can really believe that groups are equal in your heart, firmly believe that people should be treated equally, but you can still have these implicit associations in your head just because you live in the world and the world is full of biased associations. You know, I say you watch TV for about 20 minutes, you're going to pick up stereotypes. You're going to pick up associations between, for example, Muslims and terrorists is a really common trope on television. When Muslims are portrayed on television, they're most often portrayed as a terrorist. So you watch that a few times and your brain makes that association. And it has nothing to do with your belief about it. It's, you know, kind of your heartfelt belief about it, but your brain's detected patterns. And so what implicit associations and kind of what implicit biases are, are just those links you made in your brain because you've seen those associations in a biased world. And so the only way to overcome those is to be aware of them and to be really mindful of stopping them from affecting your behavior. So essentially, we have to learn strategies to reduce these biases. And as you've mentioned, sort of be aware of it, model it, and stereotype replacement, replacing stereotypical responses very purposefully with non-stereotypical responses and reflecting on those in certain situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when it comes to kids, I think oftentimes what we want to do too is just show kids kind of diverse media, which I think is hugely important. But I think we also have to talk about that with kids and frankly with ourselves to be reflective on, look at how this is showing something different than what that other show might have depicted. We have to really point out so that kids can really process the diversity that they're seeing so that it doesn't kind of fly under the radar. Because oftentimes we can mentally skip over, you know, what we call counter stereotypical images. And so we have to make sure that we're really embedding those in our minds. We have to really process them and get them in there so that it can help override all of the countless numbers of stereotypical events we've seen. So in addition to sort of spotting gender stereotyping when we're out and about or when we're watching the news or or programs, uh, it just strikes me. uh, Last night I was watching a program on surgeons, on medical surgeons, and there were two quite elderly female surgeons. And there was also a surgeon who is a black lady, a British black lady. And I purposefully said to my children, oh, look, these people are surgeons. 
And it's great to be a surgeon. I just wanted to sort of draw their attention to the fact that women can be surgeons because it's not common. Normally, it's men who people associate with those sorts of job roles. So it's quite interesting, I think, when you see diversity in occupation, for example, that we would point that out very explicitly. I agree with you. And because there's been some experimental studies with kids, particularly that shows when they show images like that, kids will misremember, instead of remembering them as a surgeon, will misremember them as the nurse, for example. Because once those stereotypes get there, we do all these mental gymnastics to keep the stereotype in place. So research has shown we'll either change the gender of the person, so we'll remember it as two elderly male surgeons, or we'll change the occupation. So we'll remember them as elderly female nurses. You know, in studies, they've done this with scientists in a lab, and the kids misremembered them as people that were cleaning the lab. Isn't it important within family life as well that we try at least to introduce our children, have a wider family circle that is diverse and, you know, not just made up of people who are exactly like us? Probably easier said than done, but I think it's quite an important point. It is. I mean, I think of all of the studies that have tried to reduce stereotypes and prejudice out there, and there have been hundreds and for 50 years people have been trying to do that, the single most effective thing is having diverse interactions. You know, what we call intergroup contact is having diverse racial and gender interactions is honestly the single best way that stereotypes and prejudices are diminished, partly because it's like we know people as individuals. We see that individuals differ and they're not simply a function of the groups they belong to. When we link our fate to other people that are different than us and we develop a better empathy for people that are different than us. I mean, it really is the single best way that we reduce stereotypes really across the board. I think one of the things that parents in particular are very, very nervous about is saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that whilst many people listening would be completely in agreement with you, it's very hard, isn't it, to should they point things out if they hear their child, you know, say something that doesn't feel comfortable, it feels quite discriminatory, what should they do to tackle it? It's a very complicated area for parents. It is. And I think it's partly because we have such taboos about, particularly with race, such taboos about talking about it. You know, I think one of the big motives I had in writing this book was to share the kind of science behind this basic idea that kids do notice race and gender and sexual orientation and kind of immigration status. They notice these things early and they attach biases to them early. So particularly race and gender, the ones that are really visible and kind of physically salient, kids notice them in infancy. And by preschool, they are already showing stereotypes. So by the time they're expressing something to a parent, they've already been thinking about this. So, you know, I think one thing parents are afraid of is if I point this out, I'm going to be highlighting it for my kid and otherwise they wouldn't notice. You know, this idea that kids are colorblind is a very pervasive idea that is not at all accurate. So the one idea is that don't worry about pointing it out to your kids because your kids are already noticing it. And then the second idea is that There's some research that's really coming out now thinking about race that shows even when parents struggle, even when parents are anxious or maybe kind of flubbing how they're doing it, 
it still is helpful for kids to have conversations with their parents. When they have conversations about biases, for example, even when parents are like physically stressed, kids' implicit biases go down. And parents do too. Having conversations with their kids helps parents as well. And that one approach is to just ask kids, what do you think about that? You know, when you see this, what, what do you think about it? So kind of framing it from the question asking part. And I think framing it as the, let's figure this out together so that it's not that you're the sage with all the right answers, but you really notice this and you're concerned and you want to kind of talk about it. I also think these don't have to be the like big, long, let's sit down on the couch and have this big, deep, hour-long conversation. I think these can be also the little micro conversations we have with our kids, you know, whether it be walking to school or walking through the grocery store. When a kid says something, just say, well, why do you think that? Well, I don't know. I think maybe this group does this and maybe lots of people do it this way. You know, it can be the 30-second conversations, I think, are also really powerful when you sprinkle those throughout the week. Christia, certainly a question that's been asked for us to put to you is about when parents have, this is a sort of a, a topic of conversation over here in Britain, that when you have a child who doesn't look like you, how parents might struggle to, to sort of understand what the lived experience of their own child might be because they've never actually been through it. So you might have a family where people are different skin color and they're just not sure how to protect their child, empower their child because they don't have the experience of, you know, facing particular biases or other people's discriminatory sort of thinking or practices. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important issue. I mean, I think as more and more families are multiracial. I mean, I think, you know, multiracial kids is the one of the largest, the fastest growing categories of kids in the world. And so I think as we, this is going to become increasingly important. And so what some research suggests is that, first of all, it's important for parents to realize that race is, you know, in the context of race, race is important. And the world is going to treat your child based on their racial group, kind of regardless of what their home life is. And so parents have to kind of acknowledge the importance of that child's racial identity. It's going to shape how the world treats them. And so part of it is just that. And then helping the kid find same race kind of mentors or kind of connections or friends. So, you know, there's been some research that looks at kids that were raised by parents that were of a different race than them and, you know, kind of really positively saying, you know, my mom always helped me make sure that I had peers that looked like me um, or took me to events that were focused on my racial group. Parents really have to just kind of educate themselves. There's lots of great books written by people of every group. So finding authors from the same racial group as your child, reading about their experiences, you know, kind of seeking counsel about what can I do that's useful, taking them to events that help foster racial pride because, you know, kids need to feel proud about the group they belong to. And so parents can really facilitate that. It may not be a personal connection, but parents can really make sure their child is in those environments that make the child feel positive about the race that they are. What about books, literature, the characters that children see? In an ideal world, children would see princesses and princes and all this, you know, characters, superheroes who look like them and not just the same old you know, story. But it's quite interesting, isn't it? That sort of media diet will have an impact on how children feel too. 
It really is. And I think what's, you know, great about today is that there are so many great books out there now. You you have to kind of seek them out, but there are really fabulous books that show diverse characters. And I think, you know, one thing I argue in my book is that I think all kids need to have diverse characters in the books that they're that are on their bookshelf in that I think it's important for kids of color, for example, so kids that are in the minority in their community to have books that look like them because they don't often see that. It's, you know, it's important for girls to have girls as main characters, but it's also really important for white kids, for example, or boys to have books that feature racially diverse characters or that feature girls because you know, white kids need to see a diverse world too. So because so much of what they see does look like them, they also need to be really comfortable with seeing people that don't look like them. Boys need to have books that feature girls as the main characters. They often don't. So boys also have to know that girls can carry the action and do smart, brave things. So I think it's important to have diverse characters, kind of underrepresented kids in literature. And I think it's important for all kids, just for slightly different reasons. Given the sort of the vast contemporary debate around gender identity, somebody said to me the other day, is it right anymore to talk about boys and girls in any, in any walk of life, in any literature? Is it important? Is it still okay to talk about that sort of gender dichotomy in its simplistic terms. Yeah, I really try to push back against that. I mean, there are kids that identify as boys and girls. So in some context, it makes sense because some people identify as boys and some people identify as girls. But I think when we only limit it to that kind of binary, when we assume that every kid is going to identify as a boy or a girl, we're forgetting about all the kids that don't. And there are a lot of kids and that those numbers are increasing every year that identify somewhere off the binary. So somewhere not in those two categories. So, you know, I think it's actually important for two reasons. I think when we focus on boys and girls as a binary and we label it and we talk about it, I think it reinforces stereotypes because it emphasizes the importance of gender as a category. And I think it excludes all the people that don't fit neatly into one of those two categories. You know, some data is showing that kids now, about one in 10 kids, a youth are identifying not in that, that gender binary. And the numbers seem to be increasing just kind of culturally every year. So I think also it's excluding a lot more kids than we realize. And it excludes them for reasons that I think are just really unnecessary, right? We're making kids feel less than or other than simply out of kind of a, because we're a, con- a social convention where we're used to talking about boys and girls. So kind of thinking about how can we talk about kids that doesn't always emphasize their gender to allow more room for all the kids that fit that spectrum. And just being careful again, that we're not excluding anyone, that the litmus test is always that we're inclusive, that we're not making anyone else feel less than any other child. So that's key, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, I think one thing that really strikes me is how important it is for the kids that don't fit into that binary you know, the rates at which, for example, trans kids think about suicide 
is just devastatingly high. And I think if we can do anything to help kids feel more positive about themselves or to, for example, not think about suicide, I mean, I just think that the life and death stakes of this make me very motivated to just to figure out how we can change our language, right? It's not this like kind of subtle, unimportant issue. It's these kids are really feeling terrible about themselves because our society makes them feel less than. I feel like, you know, the kids are not the problem. It's the society that's the problem. We have to figure out how to make everyone feel included and equally valued. So I figure we can figure out how to change our language. Our language adapts. We've, you know, our language is a living thing. And so we can figure it out. Is it true to say that children, I mean, there are many children who've experienced, you know, their friend suddenly it might seem adopt you know becoming a different gender in in primary you know sort of at a young age and they don't seem to be even you know they're not judgmental they just get on with it there is a sense that children are very accepting of difference but you've mentioned that they're also very aware of stereotypes so when children do react or become unkind to difference how does that happen? What's happening in where children are biased, where they are unkind, where they might start bullying a child that's a little bit different? What's going on for them? Well, you know, kids, especially of a certain age, can be pretty rigid in their thinking, partly just because they're cognitively still limited. They're in the process of cognitive development. And so their thinking is a little bit rigid. So sometimes stereotypes are strong, kind of pre eight, like right before eight years old, the kind of four to eight years old, the stereotypes are pretty strong, but that's, it is, it's this interesting two different forces at play. So their stereotypes are strong, partly because they want the world to really make sense. They're not good at putting people into multiple categories. For example, they like categorization. You know, this is the same age we see kids have collections of things. Well, they're sort and categorize their little tchotchkes, you know, little kind of collectibles because they like sorting and categorizing the world. So they do the same for people. But at the same time, they're also really okay with saying, yeah, well, this is, this is who this person is now. And just kind of accepting things at face value as well. So I think it's a really good age to, while they are kind of rigid and still trying to figure the world out, to talk to them about this, to say, oh, there's actually not just two categories of gender. Actually, people can do a lot of different things. And this is how this person's going to do this. And then kids are remarkably, they seem to be remarkably amenable to that. It's just that we have to actually talk about it. Left to their own, kids do seem to have pretty rigid thinking. But if their families and their classrooms support the idea that no, there's a lot of genders, you know, there's a lot of different ways people can express their gender. This person's going to do this. Then they're also amenable to that as well. So it's rigid on their own, but they're open as well. So I think that's why I encourage so many conversations because that's the time when you really have fertile ground to shape how kids are viewing the world. And how can we best protect children who we know will be targeted by bias um, in that school playground, in that high school, for example, as parents, should we be having a lot of preemptive chat strikes, you know, about what might happen, how you might handle it, what they might think, or is that sort of planting problems where there aren't any? No, I think we definitely have to help prepare kids. Know that these things may happen. You know, kids in middle school are 
frequently bullied. And often if their gender is not typical, especially for boys, if their gender is not typical and just know that that happens. And so help kids prepare for it. So what are things you can say? Who's somebody at school you can talk to? Help them have coping strategies. It may help to, if your kid is open to this, kind of role play. So if someone says something to you, what can you say back? And help them role play so that they feel confident in it. Help them identify a safe person at school, a teacher. I, I think it's useful to even reach out to the teacher to say, this has been happening or this might happen. You know, I've helped my student, you know, identify this. You're the person that they can come talk to. I think for, you know, all of our parenting decisions, we want to help prepare kids for the world they might face. And knowing that kids can be unkind. They can be unkind about what, you know, kinds of shoes you're wearing or what kind of clothes you're wearing. They can definitely be unkind about these things. And the more we can prepare kids to, and to also to give the message, there's nothing wrong with you. The kids are feeling insecure. So how, you know, again, reaffirming to kids, you're not the problem, but I know that this might happen at school. So what can we do so that you don't take it personally or feel bad about yourself? So both affirming kids' identity as well as preparing them for others, kind of negative reactions. Now, something you mentioned in your book, which really interested me, Christia, as it comes up as important in all areas of life, is the importance of sleep. Why is sleep important when we're talking about bias and unraveling bias? Yeah, so Tiffany Yip is a developmental psychologist at Fordham University and does some really interesting work, has always looked at how teens, for example, cope with discrimination and experience discrimination and has really recently started doing a whole line of research that's really looking at how sleep helps protect kids from the effects of discrimination, partly because sleep is so important to how we cope in general. So she finds that using these really clever daily diary studies where, you know, where youth are recording how they slept that night and how long and all these kind of sleep characteristics. And she finds that the days in which kids get a good night's sleep, even if they experience discrimination on the next day, you know, some kid says something to them or they face some form of bias, that good night's sleep, it just kind of regulates your system enough so that it affects you less. So you're better at, for example, seeking out friends as a source of social support. You're better at not kind of running the negative event over and over and over again in your head. So what we call rumination, you're able to kind of just say, yeah, this happened. That really stinks. Let me kind of move on. And you're less affected. And so I think it's this idea of, like you said, sleep is so important just for all forms of coping. You know, I think when I'm really tired, I can have a minor <laughs> hassle in my day and I can be quite upset about it. Almost like as though my coping reserves weren't filled up. And that's, that seems to work the same way for youth in the context of discrimination. So when they had good night's sleep, even when discrimination happened, they did the good stuff that helped them. So seeking social support, not letting the negative kind of thoughts take over their day. They were able to maintain a kind of positive mood. Very exciting. I, I love hearing that. Now, keeping things at home, this will make you chuckle. We've had a lot of questions about dealing with relatives. So <laughs> we might be raising children who are tackling stereotypes and conscious of their own biases and all the rest of it. Then sometimes maybe older relatives, sometimes that might be a stereotype in itself. They may not share our values, you know, and they might say things that are just, ah, for 2020, it's like, what, 2021? 
So how do we sort of manage those things? How do we tackle those stereotypes, the biases in, in older relatives? I think this is a very spot on question. Yes, I have the exact same experiences. And it is often the grandmas and the aunts and uncles that are often the biggest culprits of bias. I mean, and we love them, but they definitely are a challenge when it comes to this. You know, the approach that I take is you know, when grandma says something, you know, I also believe in being respectful of elders and, you know, we don't want to criticize grandma when we're having turkey at her house for a holiday, but I also don't want to let it slide. So often my approach is to, as soon as we get in the car to go home, say, you know, Nana said this about, you know, girls don't like to do this, but Nana kind of thinks about things in an old fashioned way. And we know that girls can do this and boys can do this. So or I correct it. I do the same with kind of race biases. I will try to gently correct it in the moment, but I always make sure to correct it with my kids as soon as we are out of the, you know, away from the dinner table, for example, because I do think it's important. You know, I can say we love Nana, but she's not thinking about things really in the most accurate way. She doesn't realize that this group is like this and that, you know, all people can do whatever it is she said. So I try to do it in the context of we love her and, you know, we want to respect her. However, how she's thinking is misguided. Okay. And we should say there are plenty of millions of grannies and grandpas who I'm sure have very modern contemporary views on this topic. <laughs> um, yes. I, said, I could, That's why I tend to say, this is how I do it because I can speak <laughs> to my own holiday table. <laughs> um, yes. So Christmas is coming over here. It's a big deal, you know, um, in terms of, th- I think you've had Thanksgiving, which is, mm-hmm. all, you know, you've been through a significant holiday period. What are your top tips on how to choose gifts which promote equality and avoid bias? I think kids' books are one of my favorite gifts of all time, regardless of the age. You know, finding age-appropriate books are really good. It's not often the most exciting gift, but it's one that I really like because it's easy to find great books that show diverse characters. That's one thing that I do. In general, when it comes to toys, too, I think... Is this a toy that fosters a good human trait? So kind of remembering that all toys are educational. So everything a kid interacts with is educational. There's no such thing as, you know, the kid turning on their learning brain and then turning off their learning brain. They're always learning and toys are just a practice for later life. So thinking about, does this toy foster traits that I think are good for humans? Does the trait foster compassion and nurturance? For example, dolls I think are good for everybody. Does it foster, you know, athletic ability or hand-eye coordination? Those are good things for everybody. Does it foster critical thinking and problem solving? Good toys for everybody. Don't buy toys that foster aggression and violence. (laughs) Not for anyone. So I think if you think about toys, like what does this toy teach? And is that a good thing to be teaching a developing human? I think it makes it a lot easier, right? It's a lot easier to just take gender, for example, out of the equation and think, I want to raise a kind, compassionate, thoughtful human. What toys foster that? And that makes it much easier. So I don't do things that have like sexualization of girls in them because we know that those aren't good images for girls to consume. So I typically do like a toy or a book and think diversity in media and fostering good human qualities and toys. And I think when you do it that way, it makes the decision-making, frankly, much easier. I don't have to put too much thought in it. I just make sure that I'm being mindful of what it fosters. 
isn't it important in a, in terms of general parenting that we attune we, we attune to what our child is interested in and that we're careful not to sort of load them up with our own interests or things that we want them to be interested in but we're listening very carefully to who they are no matter who they are and trying to reflect that in our choice of gift that's often the approach i take with really all of the things when i talk about them is that one of the biggest problems frankly with stereotypes is that it ignores individual qualities you know the stereotype is this image we have of a person and it's not the actual individual person so i think you know one of the biggest arguments against you know stereotypes in in general is our kids are unique individuals. We're unique individuals with lots of different qualities. And so some girls are very into nurturing and babies and that kind of soft, gentle play. And there's nothing wrong with that. Often for girls, those kind of traits get devalued because we want to push girls into STEM, for example, you know, into science and math. But all of those qualities are good. We really just have to be mindful of what are my child's unique characteristics, because we're going to have so much individual variation. And I think if we can really pay attention to our kids as individuals, then we're going to lean into their strengths, but we'll help them be well-rounded. But I think that's ultimately what my big, you know, if I had to have one take-home message from kind of all of the work I do, it's the problem with stereotypes is it just ignores all of our individuality. And so focusing on that is, I think, really the best way we can parent. So Christia, tell us a little bit about your lovely website and what you're working on at the moment and how people can buy your lovely book. Sure. So my website is, so it's just christiabrown.com um, and I'm on you, know, the regular social media things at, at Christia Brown. And the book is Unraveling Bias and it's really wherever books are sold, you know, you can kind of find them online and in bookstores. That's right. We've got our copy and it's absolutely brilliant. And we hope that this isn't the last time that we speak, because as I say, there are so many aspects to this. But your book is so beautifully written. It's obviously, you know, absolutely evidence based. And I think it really does give food for thought. And I hope that it's a perfect stocking filler for all parents who are listening. Well, thanks. You know, it's not the most fun topic, but hopefully because it ends with real strategies, I think, to make things better, hopefully it ends with an optimistic lens. So thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you all the very best with the publication of the new ah, book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.